Welcome everyone. Today is March 16th. This is Worlds of Books. Um, the book we're describe or discussing is um, The Monster of Venice by Douglas Preston. The Monster of Florence, sorry! I always want to put that in Venice. And the um, uh, my co-host is Vicki Pran. I'm Mickey Pran. And uh, we have an interview. Should we do the interview first, or should we? Uh, Vicki, do you have anything to add to the, um, about him? Oh, I thought I'd throw in a, a few comments here. Our author is Douglas Preston, probably best known for his um, co-authorship of things like the Pendergast series with Lincoln Child. Um, Douglas Preston was born in Massachusetts and had, uh, has three brothers. Richard Preston is one of his brothers and has written a couple of uh, fairly well-known books. Um, he graduated from Pomona College in California and in 2011 they gave him an honorary Doctor of Letters. So he um, thought, and probably still thinks that he was pretty cool for that, which um, which I think he is. He's done a lot of work as a journalist, um, still does, publishes regularly in various magazines and, and journals, and worked for eight years as the curator of a museum. Um, that's where he and Lincoln Child originally got together. He was giving them a personal tour after hours, and they were going through a, a, a dim hallway, or so the story goes. And uh, Link turned to him and said, "Wouldn't this be the great, a, a great, um, a great venue for a novel?" And the uh, relic was born after that. Um, he has, if you look at the author website, there is a long list of. Preston's favorite books, and I was really thrilled to see some of my favorite books and some of my favorite authors. Um, he really has liked some David Morrell and Stephen King. Um, some of his classic favorites were, of course, David Copperfield. Everybody has to love David Copperfield. Uh, Vanity Fair, which was one of my favorites from back in oh, high school days. And um, he really likes Ken Follett, who is one of my all-time favorites. Um, and just a huge, long string. This guy probably reads as much as some of the rest of us. So I said to Mickey earlier, I wonder why he isn't part of our book discussion group. Um, he's done a lot of adventuring and um, written about some of that. And Mickey and Bob have found an interview and are ready to let us hear that, unless anybody has any other comments or questions. Um, and it, it is the interview from, um, uh, that, that is probably on Audible, if you got it from there, anyone. So here we go, uh, as soon as Bob is ready. I'm Linda Korn, and I'm speaking by phone today with best-selling author Douglas Preston about The Monster of Florence, which he wrote with Mario Spezzi. Hello, Doug. Thank you for talking with me today. Hi, Linda. 
I've been listening to the recording of The Monster of Florence as I'm working on the audiobook, and I find myself stepping into your shoes at that first meeting with Mario Spezzi, listening to the details of the crimes committed by the monster and the unfolding of events from there. I'm quickly pulled in, as you describe you were. Uh, it was enough to completely distract you from your original purpose for moving to Italy, the writing of another novel. So I'm wondering how much did you know of Il Mostro di Firenze before you moved into the farmhouse in Florence? Well, before I moved to Italy, I knew nothing about the story. It's a story that actually hasn't been told in America. There have been a little bit written about it in England, but as a story, it's completely unknown in this country. And I was astonished when I heard it. I thought, this is, this is certainly one of the most extraordinary stories in the annals of crime that I've ever heard in my life, and believe me, I've heard quite a few. How did you feel knowing that you and your family had just moved into this place where this horrific thing had taken place? Well, I guess most normal people would be horrified to find out that a brutal murder had taken place in the olive grove in front of their house. But for me, I'm, I guess I'm not a normal person. <laughs> I, I thought this was kind of interesting and exciting. Although I wondered why when we rented the house, this house was built like a fortress with thick bars on the windows and locks and alarms on the doors. We immediately turned off the alarms. I was scared we were going to set them off. And I thought, gee, this is, this is wild. This house is built like a fortress. But of course, the the people who owned it didn't tell me about this murder that had taken place, but after I learned about it, I could understand why the house had been fortified like this. <laughs> Did you have any idea in the early stages of writing the book with Mario Spezzi how dangerous a job it could turn out to be? Well, I sort of started this whole project very naively and lightheartedly. I mean, here is a story of the serial killer who killed people in the 1970s and 1980s. It seemed like a long time ago, and yes, it's true, the case was still open, but I just thought, well, this is fascinating. What a, what a, what a lark. How interesting this is going to be. This is going to make a, a wonderful book. Little did I know that I would fall into the story myself mm -hmm. and become involved in the investigation, not as a reporter, but as an actual target of the police investigation. That, that, when that happened, it, it really shocked me. Had you ever been interrogated by police before being grilled by Judge Menini in Perugia? I had never been interrogated before. Now, as a novelist, I'd written a lot about interrogations. I'd had characters of mine interrogated. But you really don't have any idea what it's like to be interrogated until you're actually interrogated yourself. I mean, here I was. I was hauled into this room. There were five detectives present. I was in, questioned in a foreign language, in Italian, with no interpreter present and no lawyer. And I was accused of committing the most heinous of crimes, including being an accessory to murder. And w while this was going on, I was thinking to myself, my God, I'm never going to come out of this room a free man. They're going to take me from this room, and they're going to put me in jail, and I will never see my wife and children again. Uh, you must have been uh, sweating a little bit. I was terrified. <laughs> and it breaks you down psychologically. I kept thinking, well, what can I say to them that would help me out? What can I say that would get me out of this situation? I mean, I you know, ended up telling the truth and nothing but the truth, but I can see how a person could falsely confess to a crime, thinking somehow that that would help them get out of the situation. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the, my interrogator was demanded that I confess to this crime that I hadn't committed. He demanded it, and he said, if you don't confess, I'm going to charge you here and now with perjury, with reticence, and with obstruction of justice. And when I refused to confess, he finally did just that. He charged me with a whole slew of crimes. How did that play out with you, that here you are in your beloved Italy? Well, the, the book is a little bit of a... Of a um, an answer or an opposite, the, the dark side of Under the Tuscan Sun, you might say. I mean, it's a story of me and my family. We love Italy. We traveled to Italy. We wanted to live our dream. We rented this magnificent 
14th century farmhouse and in, in the midst of an olive groves and vineyards. And it, it started off this wonderful dream. And then as I did my, you know, did my journalism in Italy, as I became involved with Mario Spezzi and as we started looking into the Monster of Florence case, I saw the dark side of Italy. And it was a great disillusionment. However, you know, I have to say that the United States, uh, we don't have a judicial system that works very well either. I mean, if you look at Guantanamo Bay and you look at the, uh, the United States' endorsement of torture, you know, I mean, it's not, you know, the Italian criminal justice system has its defects, but so does our system. And I don't know if we really have a right to be throwing stones. The letter that Neri Capone wrote, uh, he stated that there have been four and a half million miscarriages of justice in Italy in 50 years. Do you know if this letter affected any change in the system there? Well, the letter that uh, Count Neri Capone wrote was quite extraordinary, coming from one of the most important and, and most ancient families in, in Italy. Um, he is a very famous uh, noble. He, he comes from a family that, that predates the Medici family in Florence. In fact, the Capones actually brought the Medicis to Florence and brought them into power and have you know, been in Florence ever since. For him to write that letter was quite an extraordinary act of courage because the Italian uh, criminal justice system is really unaccountable to anyone. It's its own little fiefdom. And someone like Judge Mignini can do exactly as he pleases. And there, there aren't any checks and balances. There's no way to, to remove him from office. For example, in the United States, many of our judges are elected or appointed. They can be removed from office. That can't happen in Italy. The judicial system is sealed uh, away from the political system, perhaps for good reason, because they didn't want the political side of things interfering with the judicial side. But as a result, you have a judicial system that's answerable to nobody. Why do you think he, I mean, he must know that it's not going to do much. Do you think it was just out of his own moral compunction that he wrote it? Yes, I do. I think he's a very uh, moral person, and I think he really felt that he had to speak up. Mm. And that's how he did it. I mean, his son, uh, Niccolo Capone, is a, is a close friend of mine, and he was sort of my muse in the Monster of Florence case. When I first started looking into the case, Niccolo Capone said to me, Doug, you don't want to be messing around with this case. You have no idea what you're doing here. This is very dangerous. And I said, Niccolo, what, how could it possibly be dangerous? These, the last killing was 20 years ago. And Niccolo said to me, 20 years is like five minutes to a Florentine. And he said, they're still investigating the case. They've got all these theories about satanic sex and masterminds behind the killings. He said, you really don't want to get involved in this. He said, you really should write that novel you, you came here to write and forget about the monster of Florence. Well, I didn't follow his advice. And, of course. <laughs> and uh, you see the result. Did you ever fear for your life or also the safety of your family while you were there? I did fear. I mean, there is, as the book describes, we went and tracked down a person that we think is the monster of Florence, and we questioned him. And at the end of the interrogation or of our questioning of him, Spetsy asked him, are you the monster of Florence? And he gave an answer, which is in the book, which is quite chilling. But then he leaned in towards Spetsy, and he said something very menacing. He said, you know, I don't play games, Betsy. Don't forget that. And it was quite clearly a threat. So yes, I, I felt very worried about that. I felt here's a man who, if this man is indeed the monster of Florence, he killed 14 people with absolutely no second thoughts. What's, what's to stop him from hunting me down or killing my family or killing Mario's family? I mean, yes, I was very afraid. We're talking about Antonio Vinci. That's right. Right. Uh, do you still think he's the monster? Well, I, I do believe that the evidence points in that direction, uh, very strongly. Mm -hmm. uh, the evidence is laid out in the book. I, I must say, in all fairness, we do not have a smoking gun, and what we have is a theory. 
which seems to fit the facts better than other theories. But the problem in this case is that I've seen so many theories, so many theories from A to Z, that I've, I've come to doubt my own theory. I think, well, maybe, maybe our theory isn't any better than anyone else's. Right. But if you read The Monster of Florence, if you read our book, it lays out the information, and it's up to the reader to decide what they think. You know, we don't, we don't actually say, yes, he's definitely the monster of Florence. No, we just lay out the evidence and let the reader make up his, his or her own mind. Right. And leave us hanging like, like, the rest of the, uh, like the rest of those in the story who are somewhat haunted, uh, for sure, by this unsolved mystery. Do you still feel this burden to know the truth? Well, I, I like Spetsy, I sort of developed an obsession with learning the truth, and I really believe that I could learn the truth that the truth was there in the world somewhere, and all we had to do was find it. But now I've come to believe that, in fact, we will never know the truth. The monster of Florence, who may or may not be alive, if it's Antonio Vinci, he's still alive, but there, it might, might be someone else. I mean, the truth will die with, with that person. And I think it will, that, that truth will leave the world, and I don't think it will ever be recovered. I think the monster of Florence case will be like Jack the Ripper. You know, People are still writing books about Jack the Ripper, speculating as to who it might have been, so on and so forth. I think 100 years from now, 200 years from now, people will still be writing books about the monster of Florence and speculating who this person might have been, mm-hmm. but they will never know. Knowing all of this, would you, would you do it again? Would you write the book? Well, I certainly would write the book again. In fact, I'd even be more determined to write this book, given what I know now, because it's so important that the truth about this case be told. Um, it's just not been told. It's not been told in Italy. It's not been told in other countries. You know, our book tells the truth about this case, and it is an unbelievable truth. It is so surprising and so unusual. And, you know, I just feel that that's important, that, that finally the truth come out. Mm-hmm. What is next for Douglas Preston? Well, uh, Lincoln and I are writing a new Pendergast novel called Cemetery Dance, and this is, this is going to be a really good one, I'm, I'm telling you. We, it, it harkens back to uh, the Cabinet of Curiosities. Um, it involves Pendergast in New York City, um, kind of dar- the dark history of New York, uh, it involves a very strange little neighborhood in, in Upper Manhattan, in Inwood, uh, near Inwood Hill Park, and it's just got the full cast of characters in it: uh, Smithback, Nora Kelly, Pendergast, and his sidekick Vincent D'Agosta. So I think our our Pendergast fans are really going to love this book. We're, we're certainly having a lot of fun writing it. Well, wonderful! I look forward to reading it and uh, hopefully working on the audio book with you and Lincoln Child. It's always a pleasure, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Well, thanks, Linda. It's been uh, very nice to have this conversation. All right. Well, that was, um, I, I really like hearing authors' voices because it just gives me a different, um, well, sometimes anyway, a different view of, of that person. It's not, it's often not the voice I expect to hear. So, um, all right. Well, let's see what um, uh, you, Joni, and Alan thought about this book and uh, Bob and then Mickey and I have our two cents to throw in too. Well I'll jump in first since I seem to be doing that especially on the days that the times I haven't read the entire book. Uh, I, I'll just say up front I'm not a huge fan of nonfiction. I'm not a huge fan of true crime stuff. Sorry Joni but uh, uh, that's the way it is. And I really like Douglas Preston, and that was a great interview, by the way. Thank you all for sharing that. And uh, the most interesting thing I learned from that is I've always pronounced uh, uh, the the police lieutenant in the Pendergast books as D'Augusta. I didn't know it was D'Augusta, so I guess I learned something. Uh, My problem with 
the monster of Florence, which I thought it was interesting. It just got so detailed, and and I understand why because they were trying to tell the whole story and talk about a bunch of bumbling idiots. I mean, I I know he said something about casting stones, but I mean the the Italian investigative authorities sound like a bunch of Keystone cops to me. I don't I don't know. It just anything they could have done wrong, it seemed like they did do wrong. And uh, I mean, I understand about Jack the Ripper never been haven't been found, but I mean, these murders took place in the, like the 1970s and stuff. I mean, uh, surely forensic science is advanced enough that they know to save evidence and secure crime scenes and stuff like that. And uh, I, with all the names and all the Italian, and uh, it was just hard for me to keep everything straight. I just ended up getting totally confounded by the thing. And I finally, I, mean, I got about halfway through, I think maybe to the point where they started talking about that Antonio Benzi guy, whoever the, he thinks may have been the monster. But uh, I, I I just had to throw in the towel before I before I could get done. So uh, that's my two cents. But I do like Douglas Preston. Well, I started reading it a few weeks ago. Read for about three hours, and then I fell asleep. And but the book was still on, and I was thinking, oh, there's so much Italian in this, and it's just too much. But as you know, I fall asleep reading and I make up my own books. So and I've been so busy for the past month, I really I've been reading a lot of other stuff that I want to read. And then and then the weekend came and, and I had just started another book last week and I um finally finished it and it was a novel and I just finished it like this morning. And so I read this book again, saying to myself, I'm going to read for as long as I can and see what I think of it. Well, now reading it for the second time, um, and I got to about two and a half hours uh, read, um, I'm probably going to finish it. At least I'll try to go through it. Um, uh, the interview was great. I love interviews because interviews with the authors sort of make you want to read the book. Not always, but um, I have not, not been a great fan of Preston and Childs. Um, I tried a few of them, the Cabinet of Curiosities, the Reliquary. I think I just didn't get them. I don't know what it was. I think it was maybe... They went into too much detail about forensics and stuff. And I'm interested in some of that stuff, but I find a lot of it too technical, too technical, too boring. So um, that sounds okay. Um, and I don't know how much I'll get through it because there are tons of other books that I want to read that I that I feel are, you know, first on my reading list, but then everything gets to be first that I want to read, and I don't read them first because of all kinds of other stuff, like life creeping in and, and taking too much time from my reading. But And I do read a lot, and I have been reading a lot, but still, life comes in and, uh, you know, messes up things. But um, I think the, I think, there, there was too much Italian stuff in it. The guy, I mean, I, of course, it takes place in Italy, 
um, the reader didn't have to use Italian accents throughout the 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 um, bard reading of this. I, I think sometimes they use accents where they don't really need to. We know this took place in Italy. They don't have to um, emphasize things so much as accents, which make you not know what they're reading. Uh, I um, really enjoyed the book. Uh, the version we read was the commercial version. I think it was on HCDs um, from the library here. But And that's where the interview was. I should apologize. The interview... Um, was on the stream, and uh, I think I had the speed up one notch, but uh, hopefully it was uh, it was okay, just a little faster than normal. Anyway, I um, I was fascinated because I, I like true crime anyway, even though the resolution wasn't found, the investigation was, and the interrogations were so different from what we would expect in this country. Um, it was fascinating to see how things are done elsewhere, as in Florence. And, uh, yeah, it it seemed as though uh, the police were just <laughs> clutching at uh, uh, any kinds of straws they could get a hold of. Um and uh, it was uh, fascinating to see um, how Spetsy and uh, uh, Douglas Preston, I, I like his stuff anyway, and I am behind on the Pendergast series. But um, <coughs> it was fascinating to, uh, it's hard to imagine the whole business of the family being involved and uh, how scary it really was um, for them to suddenly become part of this investigation. Yeah, I really enjoyed the book very much. The Italians are really big on family, and if they, if they really want to hurt you, they're going to get your family. Um, and as far as the Keystone Cops aspect was concerned, I had the feeling that they were being paid off. I mean, they just had to be. And from what I have heard about Italy, uh, bribery is very common. Um, I liked it. Uh, it could have been shorter and I'd have been happy, but it, it on, on the whole, I thought it was a very good book. And... Um, and I'm glad I'm not living in Italy. Well, as a rule, I like Douglas Preston. Um, I really like the Pendergast series. I've started the latest one, um, Two Graves, and I got sidetracked, and I need to get back to that one. But um, I also have read most of his other stuff, um, both fiction and nonfiction. And I just, um, I, I like the way he writes. Um, Lincoln Child, on the other hand, I don't like the things that he has written on his own. They sound really good, but the style is just, um, it just doesn't get to me. But anyway, so this book, I thought, well, this is going to be a good book. And I love true, con true crime, so that appealed. 
um, what really um, pulled me in was the the way the um, the author became personally involved. That just you know this this adds a totally different dimension. Um, it, it's not the kind of thing you find in, in most true crime things. I mean, here's a guy who did not do it, had nothing at all to do with it except for an interest in what happened and, and all that kind of thing. So um, having the Italian there and all that didn't bother me because, well, this is where it took place. So that just kind of is part of the story. Um, what did bug me and still does and probably always will is the fact that this is not uh, this is uh, the, the crime is still unsolved. We still don't know for sure that the suspect they've come up with did it, and he's not admitting anything. And it um, that always frustrates me when I read any kind of true crime thing. If the if there isn't a definite solution, and I just I want to <laughs> I want to have a a temp temper tantrum or something. Um, it's the same with the Jack the Ripper. I read the. Um, uh, the book that Patricia Cornwell wrote a few years ago, Portrait of a Killer, and she came up with some pretty interesting and uh, fairly um, convincing arguments for a particular um, person. But again, we don't know, and it's now been, um, well, I don't know, um, not not quite 200 years, and I guess we never will know. And it looks as though this is going to be the same kind of thing here. Yeah, uh, I really like the uh, the Pendergast series too. And uh, White Fire is the the latest one, uh, Vicky. Uh, you're 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 one behind. Uh, uh, White Fire is the one that's got that Corey Swanson is one of the main characters in it, and it came after Two Graves. Uh, and, and you know, granted, I, I understand probably my big problem with the book had to do with the, the, the cultural differences between over here and, and Italy. And uh, I, I, I don't know, I, I just don't have a lot of tolerance for uh, for the whole, uh, I mean, I, I realize the whole bribery thing is a big part of that. It, it just seems to me to be totally senseless the way they've got their system set up. I realize it's, it is what it is, but... Why you would have a, a cabinieri section and a police section, and it, it be organized like that, uh, just seems seems kind of ridiculous. And, and th I mean, they don't even take pains to save evidence. It doesn't sound like, and the whole thing about the crime scenes not being secure seems kind of ridiculous. <laughs> and what really struck me as kind of odd is, seems like their one of their, their their big investigation techniques was. Just arrest a bunch of people, and then when the a crime's committed again, then they'll know they didn't do it. You know, which I, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I just kind of got tired of the whole thing, and just uh, uh, I just got fed up with it. And it just uh, it, it seems to be ridiculous, and I just couldn't I couldn't stick with it. Uh, I, I stayed with it as long as I could, but uh, uh, so that, that's that. That uh, is also uh, Vicky. What fascinated me is a this author you know, becomes involved and threatened. Uh, they both did, and Spetsy, too. Um, but uh, there are these crimes that are never solved. And, uh, of, in fact, of course, when I was a kid in Cleveland, we had the Sam Shepard thing. Who killed Marilyn Shepard? 
They never did know. Uh, they arrested Dr. Sam, of course, but uh, they really couldn't. They didn't have a, a lot of proof, and good heavens, there was a whole TV series, The Fugitive and everything. But uh, And a lot has been written about that, but never did know. They don't have, here again, they don't have a smoking gun. So there are these crimes that never get solved. And some people write about them. <laughs> and I think it's true that we are, um, if you want to put it that way, spoiled because we do have um, such a, um, what's the word I want? Uh, such a, we, we really insist that crime scenes be investigated in a certain way and that DNA evidence is followed up on and fingerprint evidence is followed up on and all of that kind of thing. And uh, of course, that hasn't been true really for all that long, if you stop and think about it. We didn't have such a thing as DNA evidence back when, um, I I'm afraid to commit myself. <laughs> Uh, back in, well, definitely back in the 70s. I'm not so sure about the 80s. I think they were starting to use that more, but it, it wasn't very well developed and it wasn't, um, it was very, very expensive and it took a lot longer than it takes now. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're accustomed to a certain methodology. Um, so it's kind of frustrating when that isn't available. And yet at the same time, to me anyway, it's fascinating to see how they work through the evidence that they do have. Well, I was just going to say that the, uh, you know, even with the O.J. Simpson case, DNA was just starting to be, um, they were just starting to have DNA available and know how to process it. And you know, what was that um, uh, almost 20 years ago? And so many strides have been made since then. But before that, they had, uh, everything was very slow. They didn't have DNA. Um, and in this country, plenty of crime scenes were, were messed up so much that they couldn't really get any um, clear evidence. And um, I love true crime, and I was surprised that um, that I didn't stay with the book. But as I said, I think I'm going to go back to it because um, I'll, maybe I'll just run it at a higher speed and listen to it. And because uh, I think I want to know, um, I, I knew that Spetsy was. Um, um, accused of some of, of the murders or whatever, but I didn't really uh, know that Preston was involved in being accused also. So that uh, kind of um, is making me more interested, and in I'm glad that he's okay and that his family is okay. Um, and I did like the interview. I, I didn't notice any problems with it, Bob. Uh, if the speed was one step down or something that um, that didn't affect me at all. I thought it was really well done, and it was a very fascinating interview. 
And I think maybe we've had her on some audiobooks that I've heard, Linda Korn. Um, I think I recognize the name. Well, I forgot what I was listening to you and lost what I was going to say. Um, I, I do like, or it did captivate me that um, that he was so much involved. Um, and, oh, DNA, that's what it was. Uh, not all police districts have access to DNA even yet. Um, and one of the lines I keep reading in books is, is um, uh, police things don't work the way they do on TV. People, people are used to seeing it on TV or in books and think that's the way it goes, and it's not, it ain't necessarily so. Yeah, and uh, uh, yeah, I'm trying hard not to uh, uh, interject the the uh, the developments of, of of the last two or three decades, uh, which I, I realize uh, 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 forensic sciences has probably made as many strides as, as as the rest of technology seems to have done. So uh, I, I, maybe it was just the way the the book was written and presented. But it seemed to me that they weren't even injecting common sense into a lot of what they did, and uh, uh, you know, maybe I've been overly influenced by by reading a lot of stuff in in recent uh, recent years. But it just uh, uh, and and even though the the Italian system is supposed to be set up where it's it, it's not it's supposed to be independent and separate, I think that's what he said in the interview at least. I, I got the feeling there was a lot of of, of political stuff. Uh, uh, in, in infecting the way the investigation was done, and m maybe that's due to my not finishing the book, and uh, and maybe it's due to maybe some preconceived ideas I have. But it just and the whole thing with this Amanda Knox thing—I mean, that's a recent thing. It, it's like they—they they don't know what they're doing over there. I, I don't know. It just, uh, 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 but yeah, m maybe the Amanda Knox story of late has influenced my my opinion as well. But. Uh, and I understand crimes don't get solved, but hell, I mean, these were a bunch of crimes over a bunch of years. You know, it's it's not like it was like a one thing and they weren't able to solve. It's like a bunch of things that apparently the same person was doing them, and uh, I don't know. Well, look how long it took them to solve, like, the Son of Sam, crime, Sam crimes in New York. Um, but they were very diligent, and they finally found out who it was, and he was killing couples, and, and there were plenty uh, of crimes like that that um, keep going on and on. They can't find the uh, um, person that's doing it, and then suddenly you don't realize, you don't know, but the police behind the scenes are work working, secretly working on finding solutions, and all of a sudden, they get the uh, perpetrator. And then it's fascinating, too, to read about the cold case files when somebody has some time and de starts delving into some of those and finally pins down a, um, a culprit after years and years sometimes. Um, what I find frustrating, too, though, um, and this is um, kind of kind of comes into play in this book a little, um, let's say we've, we've caught the criminal, or let's say we never do, you know, 
um, the person who has done all these things eventually is going to die. So why the heck, before he does that, doesn't he at least write down something about you know who it was and why he did it or, or whatever, so that once he's gone, those the the mystery is also gone. It's it's like um, um, I've always found it weird that um, Ted Bundy was finally caught after years and years of total mystery and nobody having any clue about this this really nice guy and and whatever and they finally got him and he was in prison in Florida for gosh how many years and um, he he knew uh, at some point that he definitely was going to get the electric chair and yet he was never ever um, he never came clean as to how many women he had killed, and you know we will we'll probably never know. And it, it's just it's um, gosh, you know it would be nice to let us know these things. And I guess they don't. If you've killed several dozen people, whatever, I guess you don't care if people know or not anymore. So um, you don't you don't want to you don't want to clear up that mystery for people because. You got away with it, so hey, the heck with them. Well, what we need to do is, is allow, for example, Italy being a very Catholic country, uh, let the priests tell us after death. He probably went to confession 30 years ago, and uh, and and as far as Bundy is concerned, I'm sure he told he he could have told a a person. It's too bad we can't do that. Not not really. I'm. Don't want people telling people what I did. Not only that, but Bundy was also um, uh, glad to help uh, solve any crime that somebody wanted to ask him about or get opinions about. Uh, you could you could ask for that kind of thing, but nothing about uh, he never admitted to his doing anything. Uh, no, no. Well, he worked with. The police. I mean, he was on the, the. He was in the same police department with Ann Rule. Ann Rule being one of our most successful and wonderful writers of true, true crime. Yeah, true crime. True crime. And she worked beside him. She worked with him. And can you imagine the horror she must have felt when? She found out that it was her friend and colleague, Pip Bundy, and he was, he was so unbelievable. And that, that book, The Stranger Beside Me, oh my God, I remember reading that, and it was just so, it was just so scary. And yeah, he worked with the police, and he was helping them, and... Oh, well, these people, these perpetrators, have no conscience. They're sociopaths. They're probably psychopathic, too. They're, but the sociopath is really, really, these people are very, very scary because they will do anything they want. They'll step on your toes. And they just as soon kill you. Well, I really think that um, once again, <laughs> I've absolutely forgotten what I was going to say. 
Um, as far as Alan, I mean, now, uh, Alan, uh, Ted Bundy is concerned, Alan Bundy, you know him. Um, he worked on a suicide hotline with Ann Rule and didn't start working with the police until he was caught. But uh, what a, a scary guy. Yeah, uh, the, the, I can't remember what the term that they that's given to this, but it, it's really brought out in, uh, over, over in, this, in these Italian investigators. And, and I think it's, it's probably true for any of these investigators. It's when they get a theory and then they work the, uh, then they try to make the evidence fit the theory they've got, even though that's not the way the scientific method is supposed to work. You're supposed to let the facts take you down to uh, to, to the theory, and the, the other way is is, is uh, back asswards. And uh, uh, but and I know that I know any investigator and in, in all over the world probably does the same thing. They come up they come up with this hypothesis and they try to make the facts fit. And it, that, that was another thing that I got frustrated about because it seemed to be. This investigation seemed to be rife with it in this Monster of Florence thing. But uh, anyway, uh, in, in doing it that way, it's, it's got a term, and I can't remember what the term is. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure we do it over here in America, too. I think that's one of the things I like about Pendergast because he seems to do um, do things in the right order. He finds facts and, and goes with the facts and, and the evidence and sort of goes where it leads him, even though everybody else is saying, no, it's not going to work that way. And, and, and well, um, anyway, it's getting close to uh, the end of our time, although I guess we don't have to stay within the hour, but um, maybe we should look at wrapping this up and discussing our next book. Well, since no one jumped in, um we have been, and Vicki, I don't know, we didn't discuss that we should discuss this, but I think it's something to think about. The people who are suggesting books when we do them, not this time because it was Bob, tend not to show up or they, or, or we have a very small group. Um, do people want, what, what, what do people want? Now, 40% of the people today didn't read the book, finish the book. And that's kind of high odds. Um, what can we do to make the group better? Well, I mean, I don't know about better. I mean, I've talked a lot even though I didn't finish the book. So, <laughs> uh, and, and I come even when I don't, even when I don't finish the book. So I don't have any problems with what y'all been picking. You know, I've just been Seem like I've I've been busy with some stuff and uh, uh, yeah oh, well hey I'll confess I upgraded to iOS 7.1 from uh, an iOS 6.1 so that's kind of taking a lot of my time but uh, uh, you know I don't really have any I think y'all are doing a fine job with coming up with book titles I do too and um, you know as I said life gets in the way you just can't always get a whole book done and you start it and then other things happen and but I really I love coming in here I look forward to it and um, we still I talked a lot too even though I didn't know what I was talking about but um, 
and I think you do a great job of, of what you pick, and I can't think of any other, I mean, I like coming in here, as I said. Well, and our idea is to read worlds of books, a variety of of authors, genre, uh, stories that take place anywhere in this world or out of it, and uh, so on. Um, well, here are the choices for next month. Um, <clears throat> I don't remember who it was who suggested this one. Um, Deep in the Valley by Robin Carr. It's listed as general ro and romance in um, on Bard. And it's about a woman who's a doctor and she goes back to her hometown to take over um, someone else's practice. And she has to learn that confidentiality is a major thing when it comes to patients, even though she falls in love with somebody and wants to start sharing about different people. Um, the other one is called If You Were Here. It's by Alifair Burke. Um, this is one that I'm recommending. I read it just recently, and I just absolutely love her stuff. It's a suspense book. Um, it's uh, about a woman who is working as a journalist, and she suddenly sees a picture of a woman who was a really good friend of hers for years and disappeared 10 years ago and everyone thought that she was dead and now this here here she is uh, her pictures all over and the um, woman thinks that there something is going on and the more she investigates the more trouble she ends up in and it it's um it's becomes quite complicated so um we'll throw those out there and see what you all think well, they both sound good to me. I would uh, go for the second one you suggested. <laughs> yeah, I'm with Bob. If you were here, that second one sounds better to me. I don't like James Lee Burke, and this is his daughter, but on Vicki's recommendation, I would go for it, too. Well, I don't like James Lee Burke, um, and if I had known that this was his daughter, I might have hesitated before um, reading the book, but I had no idea until Mickey told me. Um, and I just, from the very first page, I was I was caught, and I'm now reading everything else that I can find that she's written. It, she's just, she's a really, really good storyteller. The suspense is there. The characters are fun and and well put together. And um, I just, I, I think it would be fun to uh, see what other people think. Well, Vicki, I like the same kind of stuff you like, so I, I'm going to go, uh, I have to strongly go with If You Were Here, the, uh, uh, the one you suggested. And it looks like, I mean, it's 12 hours and 44 minutes, which, you know, that's not the the, the shortest ones we've ever had, but that's not the longest one either, so that uh, I think that's the way to go. I don't know who recommended the Robin Carr, but that sounds very similar to the the doctor book that we read, the the female doctor. Oh gosh, the, written in the 1920s or something. It probably isn't, but it's it, it sounds like it. I'd just as soon go with the Robin, I mean with the um, Alifair, because it's on my list of books to read, and I want to read it. Fine with me. Uh, just. Give me the, the name again and the, uh, the author, and if you have the book number, that would be great, too. 
All right, it's DB76759. It's called If You Were Here, and it's Alafair, A-L-A-F-A-I-R, Burke, B-U-R-K-E. And if I remember correctly, and I'm quite sure I do, it's also on Bookshare in case um, you want to uh, read it in Braille or get an MP3 file or something. And someone else just came in. Hello, Walter. Well, I guess we scared him off. <laughs> well, well. Um, anyway, that's uh, the information on that. And that's then what we'll plan for um, in April. And that will be April... Um, oh, gosh. Oh, that will be Easter Sunday. Well, uh, that makes no difference to me. I, I'm not, I don't observe Easter, as you guys know. I don't celebrate it. Am I the only one that can be here, though? Doesn't matter to me. I'll be here. Yeah, I don't have anything um, particular planned for uh, that afternoon anyway, so um, that, that works for me. Uh, we just might not have anybody else, but you know what? We seem to function just fine with our little group, and if we get more people, hey, the more the merrier. I'm sure we're not doing anything um, outstanding in the afternoon. So we can make it. And, you know, we're a cool group. If it's just us, too bad. Maybe the Easter Bunny will come in. Yeah, like I say, I mean, uh, it, it doesn't seem to be getting our numbers up having it on days that aren't Easter. So who knows? Maybe we'll have our largest attendance uh, that we've had in a while. So I say let's, let's, let's rock and roll. Alan, how could we function without you? I just that was that just that's wonderful. It doesn't matter having it on days that aren't Easter, so what will <laughs> I love it. Well, you know, it's better to have a small group that loves what we read, that enjoys reading, than a big group that doesn't know what they're talking about. And we like it when there are differing opinions and if everybody had liked the book it would have been over twenty minutes ago. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going to apologize. I, even though I didn't finish the book, I learned a lot from uh, the part that I did read. So uh, that's why I kept yammering on, apparently, and uh, I had lots to say. Because, uh, uh, I mean, that's what makes this stuff interesting. You don't have to always finish the stuff. Uh, I mean, I can get an opinion just after the seven or eight hours or nine hours or whatever it was I did read of it. And so, uh, hey, I learned a lot about Italy, and uh and I like Ray Giles. I thought he did a pretty good job, he, he, even with the Italian accent. So, yeah, there we go. My concern wasn't for the, the, the people who are here. It was more how do we draw a crowd. But maybe we don't need to draw a crowd. Maybe we have our hardcore group, and, and uh, if anyone else wants to join us, that's great. And if they don't, well, they just don't know what they're missing. And I think everybody here has read part of a book or has decided, oh, I just I can't deal with that um, and, and just completely let it fly by. Um, and uh, I guess it's probably true with any, any group like this. You know, we, can't, we have no control over who gets here and who doesn't. Um, all we can do is keep doing what we do and if people are interested enough they'll come and if not then well um, it's their loss not ours well you know if you're a reader and like with banquet I never know how many people are going to come in and I'm always hoping there'll be a good number and sometimes 
there isn't. And I think, what are we going to talk about? Oh, my God. And you know what? Book people want to talk about books. Even if there were three of us, even two of us, in, in these groups, in your group and in mine, we're readers. We love to talk books, so we always find what we can talk about because they're books we love reading. We can't stand not to read. What would we do if we couldn't read? How did those blind people manage before there was nothing to read? How did they learn stuff? How did they absorb stuff? Well, I'm glad I'm living when I'm living, and I'm glad that I grew up in the time of really good talking book readers, many of whom are not so good now, but oh well. Um, anyway, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just going to uh, reiterate what y'all have already said. We've got the creme de la creme here, and it, you know, it's, it's like it's like the bar talk list, you know. Uh, you end up having a large number sometimes is not good because I'm finding on that list it, it you know you got a lot you know a large number of people uh, I'm just gonna be frankly say a large number of idiots that like to like to hear themselves they're the ones that yammer on and on and on and on and on and most of what they say I don't even want to read anyway so uh, uh, I, I would much rather have a, 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 a a small number, uh, a core group that, uh, that that's the creme de la creme that have that have good stuff to say, uh, that, uh, that, than vice versa. Here, here, <laughs> being a member of that group and being a, a an almost completely a lurker, I would write when there's a problem. But however, it is six o'clock, and I think that we should probably stop the recording. So I will say thank you, Bob, for recording. This is Worlds of Books for the 16th of March. And thank you, everyone, for coming. If you want to talk more, feel free.